think we're crazy? Yes, I, I never said that. It's okay. I'm not offended. A lot of people think we're crazy. But I doubt they're as happy as we are. Happy New Year and welcome to the fear of God. We are at episode 20. And on top of that, we are also in a new year. Um, this is Nathan Rouse, one of your co-hosts here at fear of God. Um, typically with me and, you know, unfortunately with the new year, uh, Reed Lackey was not to be found. He, Messaged me a little earlier, um, made mention of some peers who had invited him over for a thing, um, but that, you know, he was going to be back shortly in time for us to record, but I've not heard from him. It was, um, you know, I, I don't know exactly what this thing was that he was summoned to read. There you are. Hey, man. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out you, you made it out. I did. I did. I made it by the, by the skin of my teeth, as a matter of fact. Um, it was, uh, it was quite harried there for, for some time. So something harrowing happened. You got, you got called away, huh? It's true. It's true. I tell you, after having watched this movie, I don't know that I will be accepting very many more dinner invitations anywhere uh unless i unless i wait a minute what what movie are you talking about oh what movie are you talking about <laughs> what movie are we talking about what movie are, what movie are we doing oh well in fact we are discussing today in this brand new year in which we find ourselves the netflix film the invitation so yes that is what we're talking about today <laughs> <laughs> So yes, welcome to you, my friend. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, man. Um, yeah, we, uh, we want to invite all of you listeners to, to come along for another year of, uh, of, of fear and faith, as it were. Oh man, I'm going to stop the bumper stickers right now because they'll get out of hand. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, uh it, it's been, it's been interesting, uh, just to, to think about what 2017 will look like for our show. Uh, a while back, we did a listener survey and we asked people if we were to do a series of films, what series of films they might be interested in us talking about. And uh, that race, uh, unlike Cabin in the Woods, which also came out of that survey, that race was much tighter. Um, the, the winning vote won by only about four or five votes. Um, so it was a very, very close race. But we will be spending 2017 exploring the Universal Monster movies, the classic movies from the 30s and 40s. Um, those of you who are interested in maybe watching the films before we discuss them, then I would definitely encourage you to uh, just brush up on your on your classic Universal Monsters because we're going to be spending quite a bit of time with them uh, in recurring fashion in 2017. 
I'm actually I'm actually looking pretty forward to that series. I personally uh, have never. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've never seen one of the Universal Monster movies. Oh, you're in for such a treat. They're all like they live. Every one of them. <laughs> well, good. Then it's going to be a great year. <laughs> um, no, I'm very excited for this, too. Um, and was actually very pleasantly surprised to find so much support rallying behind that from our, from our listeners. Because I had a perception, perhaps, well, and I think false now, based on that survey. Um, but I had a perception that the Universal Monster movies, the classics, were kind of being forgotten um, in the wave of newer horror films. Uh, more robust special effects. These films, um, are very moody. They have, uh, this, this sort of gothic quality to them that has always very much appealed to me. I don't want to say too much about them because I'm really excited to just hear your take on them coming in fresh with, you know, 2017 eyes and, and modern sensibilities and, and see what you think about some of these films. But I, I adore them. There's even the ones that are notably lower in quality. I'm still very affectionate for. So I'm excited to hear what you think about those too. So yeah. Um, and, and you know, it's funny. You mentioned something earlier and I would need to do a little bit of research to confirm or deny this. I actually don't think unlike a multitude of very high quality content, I actually don't think that Netflix produced the film, The Invitation. I think they, mm-hmm. I think it was produced and like sort of ran the festival circuit or maybe even made it to theaters or something. And then Netflix acquired the distribution rights. I think that's what happens. Listeners could correct me if I'm wrong, but I've noticed when you're browsing through Netflix that their original content always has the little Netflix logo up at the sure. top of the image when you go to click on it, and the invitation doesn't. So I think this was actually something where, though they seem to have all the distribution rights right now, because I can't find it anywhere else for streaming, it's, uh, it, I don't know that they necessarily produced it. But what was interesting about it was, do you know who the director is of this movie? Or did you recognize the name? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, so the director, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I don't butcher the pronunciation, but the director is Karen Kusama, I believe. And Karen Kusama, uh, the only association that I had with her prior to this was that she directed a film which I absolutely hate called Jennifer's Body. Have you ever seen or heard of Jennifer's Body? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I know, I know, I know what you're talking about. I've not seen it. And, uh, that film, I think, got a lot of popularity or the notoriety that surrounded Jennifer's Body was more from the screenwriter, Diablo Cody, from her popularity right. coming off Juno right, and right. everything. But so, so, Karen Kasama's name just rang no bells for me whenever I was entering into a viewing of The Invitation. But uh, but then when I saw like, wow, this is the person who directed Jennifer's Body and, and the, the chasm between my fondness for this movie and my loathing of Jennifer's Body is uh, is just an insurmountable <laughs> degree. I, uh, I, I don't sure. know if I could hate Jennifer's Body more, <laughs> more than I do. Um, but... Uh, but I really, really enjoyed this film. What were your What were your specific thoughts on this film? Well, it's funny. Uh, you, f- I believe, first mentioned having seen it. You mentioned it actually on the show. Um, That's right for the Babadook months yeah. ago. This is yeah, yeah. So like September ish, and at that moment in time, you were the second person to have recommended it to me. So probably about mid November or so, I just. And, and a desire to have something to watch in a given evening, you know, turned it on, gave it a shot and was just thoroughly 
engrossed by it. And then, and at that point in time, we weren't officially planning to, or it wasn't officially on our schedule to discuss yet. And the more you and I had conversations about our experience of watching the movie, the more it became evident that this was worth spending time discussing. And, you know, I found a particular resonance in leading off the year with this movie, not necessarily because of the content, although sure, but, but, you know, we, we host a show called the fear of God. It is about, you know, this intersection of the faith of our faith and the horror genre, um, as far as typically speaking movies go. And there was just something interesting about a movie titled the invitation for a podcast discussing matters of faith in 2000. 17 at this point, America, you know, both of us having grown up in the church and having experienced, I'm sure, and probably you even more so than I, uh, based on your background, experienced our own, uh, high volume of invitations we've witnessed <laughs> in church settings. And, and I don't know, there was just, there was just an, something, uh, I felt like there was something worthwhile in terms of starting our year off with this particular piece. Um, so yeah, I, I ended up <laughs> watching it in November, rewatching it, um, just a week or so ago. Uh, so probably the shortest distance between initial watch and rewatch for this movie. And I don't know, man, I just, I'm really taken with it. I do think, and, 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 you know, you know, this experience of, watching a thing more than once. And I remember, I feel like I remember Roger Ebert in his writings would talk about, he would rarely review something unless he'd seen it twice. You know, the, the initial viewing and then a second that allows him a bit more of a critical eye. Well, I don't do that for everything, but the second time I watched this movie, I just really, my appreciation grew even more for it. I think it's one, just a great movie, you know, two, it's, it's a really strong, just horror movie, but three, there is a lot going on in this movie that just lends itself to conversations like you and I typically have on the show. Um, there's just a lot going on that we can really mine out of it. And I felt like there was, you know, some good places we could go. So in terms of just pure, you know, surface stuff, well, we can spend a few minutes talking about that. One thing that I was really struck with, even more so, you know, the first time you watch a movie, the first time you consume a piece of content, you're not always seeing it in a real objective way. And so the second time I was, I was really paying attention to some more things. And there's some, I was so impressed with just how well crafted the movie is. Um, and what I mean by that is there's, there's really kind of two mysteries going on. Mm. You know, one is the backstory of Eden and Will. And two is why we're at this party. And I think there's, there was some wisdom just on a production level, on a screenwriting level that both of those are in play because, you know, and I'm sure there's probably some screenwriting 101 that'd be like, well, you're identifying, you know, just, just a building block of this type of story, perhaps. But, you know, if you imagine that the Will and Eden backstory is either not there or less engaging, you're going to, you're going to piece this primary mystery together pretty quickly. Um, but I think, having both of those in play kind of keeps keeps us on our toes. You know, we're we're invested in Will, we're intrigued by these other characters in his life. We are curious about why we're at this party. Well, now we're wondering what happened with Will and Eden. You know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. you aren't really given the luxury to think too too hard about the mystery um because they keep juggling back and forth between these things, thus sort of 
sort of just really well executing the kind of mystery nature of the movie. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense, actually. And it's interesting that you bring that up because what I was going to comment on is like my recent rewatch of The Gift. Um, this was the second time that I had seen Invitation as well. And like The Gift, I wondered if I would enjoy it as much now that I knew what was going on. So I came into it as like, well, now that I know all the conceits, um, is this film going to drop down a little bit in my appreciation for it? And quite the opposite. It actually, like you said, it definitely rose in my esteem. And I think this is the type of film that uh, sizably rewards at least a second viewing. Because now that you know those mysteries, you can see connections make a little bit more sense. And certain things, what I appreciated a lot more in uh, this film the second time around was how they layered out certain moments of flashbacks with his son, Ty. When mm -hmm. uh, when they would flavor those before, I was like, what's he seeing? What's he... Like, what is this? Like you said, they're, they're kind of propping up a dual mystery. There is what's the purpose behind this gathering and what happened uh, between Eden and uh, David is the main character's name. No, Will is the main character's name. Um, Will. Yeah. No, David David is the uh, new that's right. husband or boyfriend or whatever. That's right. That's right. So, I think you're absolutely right that either of those mysteries on their own might have been enough for the viewer to automatically know what's going on and to suspect where the film's going to go. But when you take them together, it, I think, helps effectively ratchet up the tension. That's one thing you could definitely applaud this movie for, is it is really, really tense. It's really, really nerve-wracking. Um, I think that, you know, there, there, we've talked a lot on this show already. Well, maybe not a lot, but at least a few times about how there are the types of films that depend on startling you or making you jump. And then there are the films that just have this sustained level of dread. And then there are the films that I think do both effectively. This is one of those films that just does dread really, really well. There are very few, if any, I think maybe one or two moments that I genuinely just jumped or was startled. But most of the film I spent just feeling very tense and, and gra grappling with this, uh, sort of dread that something bad was going to happen. And one sort of final thought on the dual mystery thing, because they have that dual mystery, I did not recognize if the threat was coming from Will or if the threat was coming from David and Eden. You know, I didn't, yeah. I didn't know exactly where the horror was going to come into play. And, uh, and I thought that was very interesting. It's funny you say that because the second re or the second time I watched it, I watched it with a friend, um, who actually has done some, some, you know, kind of graduate level studies into, uh, psychology and counseling. And, and so I, I sort of picked his brain a little bit after it, you know, just cause this movie has a lot to say about that, that sort of field. And, and he made the, a similar point that, Initially, he could sort of see this movie as angling for the, as you called it, the horror deriving from whatever's going to happen due to this party. But then the arrival of Choi happens and this friend, and I, I didn't debrief this friend or pre-brief, if you will, this friend at all on this movie. I just said, you know, dinner party gone, gone wrong kind of thing. And so, you know, he didn't have any sort of previous knowledge of it. And. So Choi shows up during the movie finally. And my friend said at that point, he did wonder, is the movie actually going to display just Will's breakdown? Like, is that the centerpiece of the movie? And so, you know, to, 
to his point, to your point, I do think we give the movie some credit to be able to kind of keep us on our toes. Although I say this humorously, now that I'm thinking about it, I think <laughs> it was funny. I feel like um, as we've been discussing it, as I've been mulling the content of the movie, I think this movie is particularly horrific. You know, you, you could make a case that this is really just a horror movie for the character of Kira. <laughs> you've got, you've got this lovely, you know, 20 something African American girl who is the, the, you know, she's not the rebound in the sense that they don't have a meaningful relationship, but you know, she is the relationship post Will's long term time with Eden who just happens to show up. Um, at this dinner party with all these crazy white people and their, and their <laughs> extreme emotional baggage. And by the end of it, you know, is just thinking, yeah, I'm not going to do this again. <laughs> kind of learned, learned the lesson. I, oh I don't know how long she and Will last after this movie. <laughs> it's so funny. I had never even really thought about that, that this poor girl, it's funny. She's the only one who's there that does not have previous history with exactly. any of the other exactly. people. <laughs> She's like, what? what kind of French circle are you running you in? Because you know, prepping to show up for this dinner party it's like no it's it'll be fine you know it's oh but they're your friends am i gonna finish no you're gonna be fine you know we'll talk about this and that and the other and of course during the party he wanders off routinely <laughs> leaving her alone in this social setting with these strangers now hey she's a great uh she's she's an excellent date you know she's she's asking questions she's being interested in these people's lives but you got to imagine many times even before the stuff really starts getting crazy many times that night she's like what have i what have i signed up for here <laughs> <laughs> i think you're absolutely right i hadn't and it's funny that you say that because i hadn't even thought about the fact and you know that she doesn't have any history with these people because she's only been dating will like a short period of time and uh, well i don't know how long they've been dating but he hasn't seen, they make note of the fact that he hasn't seen any of these people in like a very long time. Well, so, this years. entire, yeah. yeah, this entire dinner is a reunion of sorts for them. So, yeah, she's all the more like, I hadn't even thought about the fact if he just wanders off, he just explores the house yep. and doesn't even like, you good? You good, right. babe? Everything okay? You know? Well, and and that's another point that like, I think the film does a pretty good job, even though I have trouble uh, even, you know, previously in this conversation, have trouble distinguishing names one from another. Um, the characters are pretty well defined. Yeah, I agree. They, they feel to me, uh, very distinct. Each of them has their own sort of subset of motivations and their subset of attitudes. And you get the sense that there is a history yeah. among these people. Yeah. And that these people have experienced a great many things. When when one says to the other that they love them, it does not feel forced. It does not feel as if like, oh, well, that sounds a little awkward. You can tell that there's a history of relationship that's building out, not only of the couples, but the friends who are interacting with each other. And I think that's to the film's credit, because that's hard to pull off. Well, I'm going to use that as a, as a deft segue here to talk about some of the scary elements. Uh, that being uh, characters telling each other that they love them, you know, so, you know, for <laughs> me, for me, the, the scary nature of this movie can be summed up in one word. And uh, that would be Sadie. Uh, oh man. This gal is off her rocker. Oh my goodness. Good Lord. Yeah. That's the type. Oh man. <laughs> well, I, love I try never to judge characters, but well, oh. 
Yeah, that one's tough. That one's tough. I mean, come on. The first time you see her, she's pantsless in shadow, making you know doe eyes at Will. Who's <laughs> who? Well, well, what's great about that moment? Now that I'm even just thinking about it out loud, like I think we've already once we get there, he's already seen the imagery of his son. And so we, as the viewer, are like, what is he seeing and what is real and what is not real? Right. You know, so he right. sees this little boy that is the first time we've seen in the movie at that point. So it's like, oh, is that an actual child at the house? And then all of a sudden through another door, he sees this pantsless crazy girl. Um, and it's like, what yeah. is happening? What did Will smoke on the way to the party? <laughs> um, you know, but you know, what's fascinating is I never feel like. Okay, I'm going to make an odd comparison here. You ended up seeing the 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 recent Ghostbusters, right? The Paul Feig Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I finally I finally did see that. You know, Kate McKinnon. There, a criticism, one of the semi-valid ones. There were there were tons of criticism level of that movie. Many of them invalid, but one of the semi-valid ones I think is Kate McKinnon feels like she's in a different movie than the rest of the performers. And and again, my my point isn't to discuss whether that feels true or not. Um, I think there is a a case you, you could almost make the case that Sadie is almost too over the top for this movie, except that I never feel like she is. She, she fits in. She keeps us on our heels. We don't know what in the world is going on. Kind of as we've sort of discussed, is the horror going to come from Will? Is it going to come from the host couple? Is it going to come from somewhere else? Like we are kept off off balance by these strange elements, but it all kind of works together, I think. Oh, I completely agree. I completely agree with that. And it's interesting, you made a statement there that that sort of triggered something in my brain where you talk about, and I know we're talking about scary things right here, but I think that is a kind of an element of the dread to it that you you don't know what's real and what's imagined. And and that's kind of part of what the we're not transitioning to theme yet, but that's part of what the film is kind of playing with is this idea of what is real, what is imaginary, um, what is all just in your head and what is this sort of like uh, like I got the sense that since Will is our primary, you know, uh, sort of point of view, um, I think he's in every frame of the movie, I think. And, well, not every frame, but I think he's in every moment. Sure. There's never a moment where, like, we see something outside of Will until maybe the last, like, 20 minutes when things start really hitting the fan and all secrets have been revealed. But, uh, but since we're with him so much, I know for myself, I have a tendency to relate to him, which is, again, calling back to our earlier mention, why I thought the film was about to pull, like, a switch on us and say, like, oh, actually... Will's the one we should really have been afraid of. I was, uh, I actually felt refreshed that that wasn't the direction that it went. But one of the things that I thought was really, really scary about the film is this notion of, is this threat or is the feeling of threat all just in our imaginations? Right. Like uh, the character of Miguel said to, to Will at one point, he says to him, or not Miguel, it was Tommy. I get those, I intersperse those two characters. I'm going to apologize to listeners right now for any names that I get wrong. Cause I, <laughs> I, I admittedly, as, as much as I said, these characters are well defined and distinct. I still feel that way, but man, I was jumbling names left and right trying to sort through my, my thoughts on this. But Tommy says to Will at one point, um, he says to him, you're safe. And he emphasizes that in like a conversation in the backyard. He's like, man, you are safe. I know terrible things have happened to you, but you are safe. Safe, safe, safe. And 
It was interesting to me because I, like probably any other audience member at that point, am with Will in that I don't feel safe for him. I don't think that he should feel safe. And that was what was so sort of captivating to me about the film is it plays on that fear of, yeah, maybe you're just experiencing some degree of grief-riddled paranoia or... Maybe you're not safe. Right. <laughs> you know, the old the old saying of, you know, you're it's not paranoia if they're really after sure, you. Sure. <laughs> you know, there's you know, maybe you're just picking up on gosh, I want to mention one other scary moment. So so I'll uh, I'll wrap a bow on this thought that I'm having and then I'll I'll uh, tag it back to you after that. So I think there's this interesting thing where you can go into one of two extremes. There are people who live very paranoid lives. And they live very frightened and they live under an incredible cloud of anxiety. So, as compensation, people may abundantly sort of overly tell them, hey, you're safe. Nothing bad is going to happen. Everything's going to be fine. Which is actually not the reality. There's some danger out there. There's some problems. Some things could go wrong. It is conceivable that things will go wrong. But again, then the other extreme where there is a threat in everything and, and overly anxious and over riddled with, with fear and paranoia is also not the reality. And I think emotional health, um, spiritual health, uh, just healthy living, healthy mindsets finds that interplay of being discerning and recognizing where there is danger that needs to be addressed, but then also never really losing sight of the fact of I might be I might be imagining this. And I think the film does a really good job without ever really hitting the nose. Um, it never feels forced, but I think the film does a really good job of exploring that. And that's part of what I found so unsettling about it is that it is playing with that idea that maybe you're, maybe you're overly paranoid or maybe you're just not safe. Right. Well, and it's interesting, you know, with recognition that we, we should pivot towards themes in a second, but like I never felt both times I watched this, I was never feeling like this is a psychological horror movie. You know, there's, there's Hmm. something about the nature of, of the filmmaking at work here that makes it feel real grounded. Like these are real people. This is a real thing happening. And that's why the, the visions of the little boy throw you off initially. You're like, wait, what Hmm. is that? And then you start to gather, Oh, these are his memories as, as he's wandering through this familiar place. So I, I do think, Part of the strength of the movie is it does feel very grounded, um, even in those moments where you, the, the, the dread is starting to unspool, uh, in a real pronounced way. It's almost because, wow, this feels very real. Something, something sincerely not right is afoot and Will is right. Yeah. Will is right to be suspecting something. And I think that's what's kind of powerful about the movie is you're, you're with him. You're like, something's weird. I don't know what it is, yeah. but something is weird. So in in the spirit of that, you know, uh, I will say one last uh, sort of scary moment, uh, and then we can jump into some thematic stuff is, I mean, admittedly, Choi showing up shifts the shifts the axis of what's going on in a real dramatic way like that. That was brilliant. Yeah, it, it, it really oh, was. Brilliant. Because, again, you're you're on Will's side. You're like, yeah, something screwy is going on. Um, and then the voicemail comes, you're like, Oh no, he's dead somewhere. He's buried in the backyard, you know? And then all of a sudden he shows yeah. up and you're like, well, I don't know what to think now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And I'm so with Will in that moment. Like, and, and huge kudos. We haven't named, I think, a single actor, but Logan Marshall yep. Green, who, you know, we, we were very fond of in Devil. He, uh, he just does a, oh, he's a, great. a wonderful he's great. job. In this, in this role of being sort of 
He plays every beat. I feel like, even though I would be hard-pressed to define each thought, I feel like I see every thought in his head. Yeah. I feel yeah. like, even though, you know, just with subtle facial expressions and everything, I feel like it's such an accomplished performance because he really invests us with him. When he starts to flip out, it doesn't feel out of nowhere. Yeah. It doesn't feel like, oh, wow, that was erratic. I've felt it building in him over time. And in that moment that you just mentioned, when Choi shows up, his tears oh, man. and his breakdown yeah. after that. I love that moment. It's I'm hard-pressed to find a singular favorite moment in the film, but that's on the short list because that is a tremendous moment because everybody else is feeling awkward, everybody else is feeling embarrassed, and now now he's the he's a, the the elephant in the room. Yes. That oh yeah. man, yeah. he really he's really not okay. Everybody else here is okay. Will's really not okay. And and he's feeling that. He's sensing that that sort of wait am i am i really just imagining all of this am i really just you know uh am i just losing it in in some capacity and my heart goes out to the character so much in that moment and i think it's it's brilliant that entire move from every from the way it's directed the way it's scripted and the way it's performed that is a stroke of brilliance from a storytelling perspective for Choi to show up at that moment. Yeah, and sincerely, I, we, we are definitely getting into themes, but you, your conversation is making me think of this, uh, talking about brilliant moments, um, just in terms of execution in the film is the line, she's not breathing. Remember mm, when he, mm. he, he lashes out at Sadie. Oh, yeah. He lashes out because Sadie's lost her friggin' mind and, and, yeah. and, and sort of attacks her. Well, you know, rebuffs her crazy attack and looks like maybe knocks her out. And you hear, I can't remember who actually says it. Oh, Kira. You hear Kira say off screen, she's not breathing. And you just naturally assume they're referring to Sadie. It's Sadie. And then you cut over right. to the other girl, Choi's girlfriend, whose name eludes me. Like, is this happening with both of us? Gina. Gina? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah. oh, man. All right. Here we go. Buckle up, everybody. This is about to be a wild ride. You know, like that's that's a oh, that's a great gosh. moment right then. Oh, it so is. And and that's the that's the thing this film does really, really well is just, you know, playing off those expectations. Just a hit and run moment. And then I have a, a, a theme that I'd like to mention before we dive into something that, that uh, I know you wanted to talk about. One of my votes for scariest moment in the film was maybe going to be when Pruitt goes out to move his car. Oh, that's great. When, when Claire, yeah. when Claire yeah. leaves. Yeah. But when he moves his car for Claire and, and we're all sitting there like, man, she's going to die. Right. He's going to kill right. her right there. Like, you know, that's what Will's thinking. And, and it's like, she, she's, she's not, she's not okay. And it's ironic, especially because we're getting into themes. Okay. So I'm going to say this because we haven't yet. Uh, I don't think that we've specifically spoiled anything in about the details of this plot. But if you have not seen this movie, log on to Netflix, watch this movie. It's definitely worth your time. It's a slow burn, uh, very slow paced, but with a really killer payoff that is worth your time. But she, Claire, is really the only one who gets out of this whole thing unscathed. Yep. Yep. And I thought that was interesting when I watched it the second time, because there's no reason to believe no reason to believe whatsoever that Pruitt did her any harm. No reason. Because it would have been foolish of him given where things were going and how everything had to be specific and it had to be this certain way and they flipped out when it wasn't going to be that certain way. There's no reason to believe that he would have done her any harm because that would have ruined everything. The cops might have found her. Uh, they, then, you know, it would have spoiled the whole rest of what they were trying to accomplish at that dinner. Um, so she... Ironically, just because she's too uncomfortable, she she's the only one who really doesn't suffer any legitimate trauma in that 
in that evening. Well, and I think, I think you could, I mean, I'm with you playing devil's advocate a bit. I think you could also make the case that perhaps she doesn't survive. I mean, if you view Mm -hmm. it from the standpoint, like one of the notes I took was, did Pruitt's level of transparency in his story accelerate their plan a little bit? Cause man, what a, what a just nightmarish tale to tell in Whoa. a group of folks, you know, and, and like, no he's clearly a, a few sandwiches short of a picnic. Is that a phrase we can use? Um, <laughs> Three fries short of a happy meal. There you go. There you go. So I agree with you. you. I think you could make a case both ways. Like, because we don't see, yeah. we don't, we don't physically see her depart and never find I out. I would believe yeah. that guy's crazy enough knowing that what's about to happen in that house that he'd just be like, all right, I'm going to do this anyway. You know, you, could, you absolutely could be right. There's a case to be made there, though. I do. I do. I am so impressed with the movie. Like it does not conceal the fact that you as a viewer need to be worried for these people, but you're still kind of, mm-hmm. I, just, I don't know why, you know, like. Right. The, the locks and the tentativeness when Claire wants to leave, all these little things that are very explicit. You know, these aren't subtle right. m- maneuvers in terms of these characters' actions. So yeah, let's, let's, let's dive into some, some thematic stuff. I think there's a lot of different places we can go. And, and, and I think maybe I'll open the door a bit with a kind of a broad question and just sort of see what you think about this. So. The, uh, a question I wrote down with no real formulated answer to was, and this, this really struck home on this second viewing. And I wrote, is the invitation a hopeful horror movie? Like if, if there's a <laughs> subgenre to horror, does the invitation qualify as hopeful? And, and I think, I don't know. I just think there's something really fascinating happening in this movie. And hear me, you and I try to pick things to feature that, of course, have content that will lean itself towards rich conversation. So, so I'm aware there's a ton out there that's, that's kind of, uh, super shallow and, 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 and maybe not or not worth our time, depending on the day. But this movie in a real specific way, it, it, there's some restraint to it. So it's not real gratuitous. Of course, when the action kicks up, I mean, it goes full bore, but, but it feels like the screenwriter, the, the production team is it, like the movie itself is actually interested in meditating on what emotional wellness and process grief processing really looks like in people. You know what I mean? Like, Mm, of course it's going to be heightened by the end of it. We are dealing with like this death cult kind of idea, but it does truly feel like it's using these things to say there are appropriate ways to process grief. There is a means of emotional health that you can achieve and here are some examples of people doing it certain ways. And these folks are very destructive, whether they mean it to or not. I mean, it's, it is pretty clear that whatever their mental state, these folks have a certain... I'll throw this out there and we can unpack a little bit. It's hard to argue that Eden and David aren't well-intentioned. Does that make sense? Like... Hmm. Like I'm not saying I'm, yeah, I'm not saying they aren't um crazy a little bit. But right. But but they their perspective on what they're doing is definitely not one of ill will. Well, see, okay. Maybe. I'm maybe. Again, a, I'm I'm just yeah. throwing that out there. That's I'm, that's coming to me in real time, so Sure, sure. And uh and yeah, and I I understand that. I think my interpretation of of the events is slightly different in that I see their action while they may genuinely be thinking that they're doing their friends a favor, their actions are unquestionably utterly selfish. They're like, like completely oh, I don't, weird. I don't, yeah, yeah. 
And in that sense, I would say ill-intentioned in that they are trying to literally sacrificing their, their, their friends sure. for the sake of their own sort of freedom, for the sake of their own, like, you know, uh, when everything hits the fan and everything goes wrong, Eden has a full-blown meltdown. And she's sitting there weeping, saying, this is wrong. This is so wrong. Right, right. This wasn't supposed to be this way. And David tries to comfort her by saying, this is how we make it stop. Right. This is how well, we make yeah, the pain yeah. stop. This is how... The, and, and so, he is telling her, like, it's going to be okay, but these people, to them, were... An offering, like, like you know, echoing back to our cabin in the woods conversation. These, this was a sort of a maybe not appeasing the gods, but a a process of you know trying to uh, sort of just just go out. They could sure. have easily just done it themselves. Sure. They could have easily, like, if it was just them wanting to you know escape this this pain, this grief, they could have easily just killed themselves. There was something in this cult and in the teachings of this cult that said you gather your your friends together, right, which right. we haven't talked about it and don't need to go into specifics right now because I have something to say about it, but th which is where you get the final scene, where the, the, right. the final I shot of the movie. I love that final beat. Oh, my goodness. Well, it is it is one of the most incredible endings for a film, for a horror film that I've ever seen. Well, and, it, it ranks yeah, high. Yeah, and again, uh, you know, to, to the extent um, the, the comment of their, their ill or well-intended actions, I do think there is something to be said about the hopefulness of this movie, meaning there's, there's an interesting dichotomy happening. So Will, because of his isolation from Eden and from their past and from that house had been denied his ability to grieve in a, in mm. an appropriate, healthy way. Right. So he was still dealing with a lot of hurt and loss and pain. Whereas interestingly enough, Eden and David had actually denied grief for themselves. Does that make sense? So like, no, yeah. Will, oh, yeah. Will had been denied grief by others actions, by the circumstances, whereas Eden and David actively resisted grieving, you know, and, and, yeah. and there's this really fascinating conversation. The movie I think is trying to have with what it means to go through challenging life experience and, and to try to come out on the other side. And, and a quote I wrote down just in Will's trajectory as a character and his arc of wholeness when he and Kira are stealing themselves to go back into the main part of the house once they realize just how locked in they are, he says, the, the quote is, he says to her, they are just people. And I think that's mm, a really mm -hmm. fascinating line. Oh, like, I love that line. Like, yeah. these aren't monsters. They are confused, yeah. hurt, angry, distraught, misled, deceived, but they are just people. And, and we're going to overcome yeah. it, basically. I don't know. I found that a really powerful line. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, it's funny because two, th two things that it makes me think of about that and getting back to, okay, so to, to further validate your point about Eden and David sort of burying their grief and denying it, Will calls them out on that at one point. Will says when he's like having one of his, you know, two or three freakouts that he has from them or with them. Uh, before he, he turns out to be justified, um, he's he tells them, he said, no, this is denial. This is not freedom. This is denial. And in that moment, the audience is kind of on the fence about whether or not Will is correct, sure. about whether or not Will is 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 sort of uh, losing it himself. Um, but of course, the film validates him. And I think by extension validates his observations about what's happening. Right. And that's one of them where he, you know, he says, like, you're you're just denying this. He says, our son died. Like, that was real. Right, that happened. Right. You know, it reminds me, 
I am not trying to be silly here, and I'm not trying to derail us into humor. Arguably, the worst Star Trek movie ever made was Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, and there's a moment in it where uh, Captain Kirk has a speech because one of the villain of that film sort of takes people's pain and takes their pain away, and then, in a sense, sort of makes them serve him and follow after him. And he does that to to a degree to Spock, and he does that to McCoy. So when he goes to do it to Kirk, Kirk has this whole big speech that's a little silly because it's not a very good movie, but he says, I need my pain. Like my pain is part of what drives me. Like you can't you can't take my pain. That's part of what that's part of who I am. And here's what's interesting to me about when I was thinking about this film, I think that and I know that this is probably a very, very broad statement. And you may have some challenges to it. Listeners may have some challenges to it. But I think I believe this, that emotionally healthy spirituality does not mean being absent from suffering or absent from pain. And it doesn't mean denying or burying your pain. I think it means sharing your pain with others and sharing in others' pain. I think that is emotionally healthy living. And I think that is emotionally healthy spirituality, that when you come together and we'll use the the scriptural term, bear one another's burdens, then I think that's where you can really begin to to move forward in it. But if you try to act as if what God is inviting you to, the invitation, uh, well, well, let me set this up this way. When I was hearing a lot of the language spouted off by like Pruitt, David, Eden, it was... Uh, it was a little uncomfortable for me in the second viewing. I didn't register it as much in the first viewing because I didn't know what was going on. But in the second viewing, knowing where they're going, I was made very uncomfortable by the language of things like, you know, forgiveness doesn't have to wait. You can forgive yeah, yourself. Yeah. You don't have to, you know, and, and he's saying these things and I'm like, holy crap, I have heard people I dearly love who believe the same things I do say these things, you know, say these kinds of uh, philosophies and these kinds of ideas about like forgiving yourself and letting go of the pain and, and, and releasing it. And there's definitely a conversation worth having to any degree about the nature of, of the invitation that we believe as Christians is extended to us by God, by Christ, extended to, to be free from these things. But I think it is often translated by Christians to mean that we will never experience those things sure. and that now we will never wrestle with pain. We will never wrestle with suffering. And I think that's one of the, we've talked about this before on the show, but I think that's one of the big missteps in modern expressions of the Christian faith is when they act as if Jesus promised that his disciples would never suffer. That was never anything. I mean, there are certain scriptures that you could, you know, isolate them and pull them out and completely remove them from the context of everything else that is said in the scriptures. It's like, well, no, here, see this promise right here. But what I do think he said is I think he was saying that your sufferings don't have to be the final verdict on your story. Your sufferings do not. I mean, he said to his disciples in this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart because I've overcome the world. Sure. It's not that you're not going to experience these things. It's that these things won't win. These things won't get the better of you. And I think for Eden, for David, they've already just, they, they can't conceive of a world where they move forward in this pain. So they've conceived of a world where they can, you know, their version of freedom is, is escaping. Right. It's not right. wholeness. It's not healing. It's getting out. It's, you know, ejecting. That's, the, that's their idea of freedom. And there's a frightening amount of people. I hope that this won't derail us too much, but there's a frightening amount of people who you will hear 
express the same thing, where in sometimes largely evangelical circles, you'll sometimes hear people say like, well, you know, if everything gets bad, that just means Jesus is coming back sooner. And that just yeah. means that it's all just going to yeah. blow up, that it's all just going to burn. Now, here's what I will say, because I want to be sensitive to that. There are variations of that expression. I'm not ridiculing. I'm not mocking. I have deeply held convictions about that subject as well. But here's what I'm confronting when I say it that way and when I bring it up in this, in this manner. I'm confronting the idea that, well, everything is going to fall apart anyway. So just let it. Right. right I do yes, not think yeah. that is part of a faithful Christian life to say, well, you know what? It's all going to go bad. So who cares if it gets even worse? Sure. Meanwhile, sure. I'm just going to hope that I stay comfortable. I'm just going to hope that I stay. Uh, cared for and everything else can be everything else. And I do not feel or see in the gospel that that is the posture we as Christians are supposed to adopt as followers of Christ. I just do not think that's the case. And these people in this cult, this death cult, that's what they want. They're just like, push the button, let us out. Right. And that's their idea of freedom and peace. And it's, it's really interesting to, to look at it that way because I really, at first was made very uncomfortable and then later really resonated with the fact of that is that is not freedom. That is not peace. No. Well, and, and you know, there could be a whole side conversation from this movie to be had about, you know, manipulating people's vulnerabilities. And, 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 and that's, that's oh, the, the yeah. essence of, of what a cult does well um, when it does it. Um, but it, you, you made me think of just then talking about pain and and sort of engaging or not engaging. It makes me think of our conversation around Cloverfield Lane, actually about safety and how, yeah. you know, so much. And, and I would echo your comment of awareness of folk in the world and in Christian faith who, you know, would, would identify an absence of pain as a version of healthy living. And, and I just don't think, right. I just, I just think that's a, such an extremely misguided perspective. The, the author Philip Yancey at the height of my consuming his material about a decade and a half ago at this point, but has a lot to say about the medical notion of pain and how that intersects with the value of physical pain from a faith perspective that, that, mm. that awareness of living, that, that fullness of self, like you, you will experience pain. Like, like I love your reference to that scripture a second ago, you know, there will be troubles, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I mean, like that's, if, if, if that's, <laughs> um, talk about a her heretical comment here. If that's all that was in scripture, that verse is enough, you know, like, like mm. you can live through the pain of your situation, the pain of your life, um, because it, it isn't the last word and to somehow right. deny yourself pain or to deny its existence or to, in this case, in this movie situation, view traumatic life experience as somehow a thing you can even disregarding the death nature of this cult, but to view traumatic experience as this sort of thing you can kind of carve out of your existence and just remove and toss into the fire. Like that's such a dangerous uh, way to, that's oh, such yeah. a dangerous way to live because then you end up in a death cult and killing all your friends. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, to put well, it bluntly. The, the, well, and the, the, the word that comes to mind, this is not a real thing, but it's kind of like an emotional lobotomy. Sure. Like it's oh, kind yeah, yeah, of this yeah. idea of of taking this part of 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 your emotional distress and just c 
cutting, you used the words carving it out and that's what I thought. Like you're just shaving off that portion almost in a, not a romantic sense obviously, but almost in an eternal sunshine of the spotless mind kind of let me just, let me just remove this and then I will be I will be better, you know? Well, and, and we never learn exactly, we never learn exactly what David's backstory is, though they do allude to it being similarly traumatized, tra- traumatic. But, the, but your, co- your, right. your comment just there reminded me of the scene in the film when they're all in the den before things get too uncomfortable for Claire. And David has this moment where he's talking about his own experience and his own pain. And, and the image I have, he's got his arms in the air and he does this kind of poof comment. Do you remember this? And, but, oh, but he's yes. basically what he's saying is all that stuff I was feeling, poof, it's gone. And it's like, no, brother, it is not gone. It is buried deep nope. in that psyche and it is wants out in a bad way, you know? <laughs> and that's why, oh, you know, absolutely. to sort of bring this full circle, at least for where my thematic ideas were coming, that to me is why this movie feels like a hopeful movie. Like it is trying to say, no, 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 no. <laughs> you, 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 you ignore and you carve out these things in your emotional framework at your extreme peril and ultimately the yes. extreme peril of those who love you and are close to you. And it's interesting. I want to throw one thing at you that sort of piggybacks on that. But uh, rewatching the movie, I was struck by the coyote scene in the beginning. And oh, yes, and this, I have a comment about yeah, that. It may be what you're well, about to say. Uh, you know, this this movie is so intentional in what it's trying to do and say, I think that you can't you can't just ignore that scene like there's there's something there's something trying to be said there and this is pure hypothesis on my part so i I recognize that but i think i think what's powerful to me about that scene and you and and you might not pick up on this if you haven't seen it once already just knowing where the story goes is will in the course of this movie everyone treats him as this fragile thing like like he is the weak one, you know, and and his sort of state of mind and state of being is juxtaposed towards, at least in their estimation, the strength of the will, the David and Eden, the Pruitt, the Sadie, who have been able to excise this stuff from their life. Like they are propped up sort of in the emotional spectrum of the movie as the strong ones. You know, I think I think we could say that. Right. Well, I watched that coyote scene and I thought, wow, this is really powerful. I feel what I took from it on a second viewing of that scene is will is the strong one. Like Mm. he is the one who in that scene shows resolve and shows action in the face of a a terrible thing. Like, you know, like there's, there's nothing malicious about will, you know, ending this creature's life. And wow, there's this, this is coming to me as I'm saying it, but as again, as opposed to the David and Eden and Pruitt who are actively pursuing the death of those around them and themselves, Will is forced into this scenario at the very beginning where he has to sort of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a very intentional scene where he has to end the pain of this creature. And so mm-hmm. on the one hand, you're setting up that, that emotional seed for where this movie is going. But on the other hand, it's, it's in such a different way. It feels more compassionate yeah. on David's, on Will's part. I keep doing that just like you, 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 you. You've infected me with your name screw ups here. Um, you know, it feels compassionate on Will's part. This thing is not going to survive the night and there's nothing malicious. In fact, there's a lot of heart in his doing this to this coyote at the beginning. I don't know. I don't know. That, that's all kind of coming to yeah. me in the moment. So you seem to have a thought on that scene too. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's where you, uh, so my, when I saw that scene, 
Again, this is why I said that this film rewards at least a second viewing, because once you know what's going on and you watch the film over, you see how intentional so much of it is. Because the first thing that I thought when I watched the film the second time is at the end of that scene, I was like, wow, he put it out of its misery. Yeah. And when I thought that phrase, which is a common phrase when you think about like, you know, when when an animal... Uh, that depends so much upon mobility or is too far gone. Uh, you know, people who are animal lovers and are, might be listening to this right now might cringe at some of these thoughts, but there's a, there's a pervading idea that once an animal reaches a certain degree of, of age or suffering, you will put them to sleep and put, put them out of their misery. And essentially, that is the death cult's answer to the pain and suffering of everything that they're experiencing in the world is we're going to put ourselves out of this misery. And what that made me think, I, I want to talk very spoilery for those who have not seen the film. If you've made it this far just because you wanted to take a chance, I'm about to spoil the final scene of the movie. So the last shot of the film, as we know, before everything hits the fan, David goes outside and lights a lantern, yeah. lights that red lantern. That red lantern is on the, it's hard to say cover, but if you pull up the film on Netflix, you'll see like an image, that red lantern is at the top of that image. So I knew that was significant when I saw it. But when he lights that lantern, the final shot of the film, after you realize, wow, these people have been involved in a death cult and they've, you know, thought that they were just going to kill all their friends and go away. The final shot of the film is Will and Kira standing on that that cliffside looking out as the sound of sirens yeah, and, and screams, crying yeah. and screams yeah are rising up from the valley and they look off and there's probably half a dozen uh half a dozen to eight other red lanterns that are lit across the valley and here's what i find so powerful about that scene i'm going to i'm going to uh, you know of course that revealed that there was a multitude of other people who were experiencing this this death cult experience and what it was to me when i saw that moment the second time is when it became solidified because the first time you're just kind of shocked and stunned and now i have to process this the second time around here's what i thought there is a difference between well let me let me express it this way this cult has a kind of a glorification of death i mean david eden earlier in the party they showed they showed the death of a person and considered it a beautiful thing, a lovely thing. They have this almost like, I would, I would re- reluctantly call it a worship of death, where they're just like, death is the ultimate, you know, peace to this. And, oh, we're, we're, now we can be with the ones we love. And it's so, uh, you know, it's so peaceful and everything. And you juxtapose that with what I believe to be the very deeply orthodox Christian ideal of the conquering of death. And I think it's very different when you think about the glorification of death versus death is nothing to be afraid of. See, they say that several times throughout, well, at least once or twice throughout the film. They say, well, it's nothing to be afraid of. It's nothing to be afraid of. But that's because they have elevated the transition itself versus what I believe for myself to be the more orthodox Christian ideal that, yes, we need not fear death. We need not necessarily celebrate it either or or you know seek to achieve it where as we've said before on the show you get reckless and you become you know sort of uh, uh just careless with with your behavior but at the same time we need not fear it and what i love so much about that final shot despite the holy crap moment of seeing all those other red lanterns is that what do will and kira do when they see all of the death cult 
signs everywhere. They link hands. They join hands and stand right there on that. So, so they have, have chosen to sort of come together in this and they're going to be there for one another for however long. Like we joked earlier that Kira's probably been very traumatized, but that they are going to move forward in life together. And it made me think of a scripture that, uh, that I wanted to share for this show. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19 says this. It says, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. And this idea of perhaps with every decision that we make, perhaps with every circumstance we make, it's as if the world around us, our Heavenly Father, Christ Himself, it's as if all of these these things, these unseen things are setting before us life and death, and we get to choose. And I found it personally very resonant and very powerful that Will and Kira look out on a multitude of evidence that many people chose death that night. Yeah. Many, many people chose death that night. And then when they link hands, that's, of course, with my sensibilities, with my thinking, that's what I thought is they are choosing life. Mm. They are going to move forward. Will has still lost his son. And we didn't even talk about the heartbreak of like that moment where he imagines laying in the bed oh, next to gosh. his son. Oh, It's so you know? heartbreaking and, and beautiful. And, and the, the moments that they share in his memory banks from his son are simple things yep. like, sh- like teaching his son how to wash his hands mm-hmm. or, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the, uh, the grandiose things that we often think of in relationships with fathers and children. It's simple things like laying in the bed next to him, coming home and seeing him sit there, you know, the, washing his hands. Those are the kinds of things that he remembers and that he grieves. And that is life. That's what life is. And so, even though he's been deeply impacted by the fact that his son has died, he will continue to press forward and choose life. That's the, I mean, that's not the invitation of this film, but that's the real invitation that exists for each and every one of us, well, you, is to, to press forward. I wouldn't dismiss that too out of hand, because, you know, I used the phrase this before you and I even talked about the movie, of, of is this a hopeful movie, and I'm going to make a final connection here, perhaps final connection here that sort of substantiates what you're saying before all the smarty pants say, well, Nathan, here, this was right in front of you and you didn't see it. So I was talking a minute ago about the coyote scene and, and I'm, I'm less pivoting away from your idea and more supporting it of how that act on Will's part shows compassion. And I thought this is where you were going a minute ago, talking about the final scene. What happens at the end? Kira and Will see Eden broken and and, oh, and, and, wow. and near death and have an extreme act of compassion where yes. these people have just yeah. tried to murder the two of them mm-hmm. in, in fact, you know, it is not, it was not accidental. This was an extermination by right. these people and right. And they show compassion on her by honoring this last wish of having her, of, of taking her outside, which is where their son, you learn, passed away, um, and had his, right. that trauma. But, but, you know, this, I think in the beginning, you, you, there's a case to be made that on a certain level, Will chooses life. If you want to use this language for that coyote. And again, I understand there's some nuance to that. And, and that is married to that final moment, that final act he performs towards Eden, which is, you know, he recognizes you are so deceived and manipulated and, and, but loved. 
And, and this is how yes, I'm going to show yes. this compassion towards you, you know, this person that they, that he shared some very significant life with. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think yeah. it's a very powerful, uh, powerful testimony to choosing life. Cause yeah, I'm with you. You get the impression at the end, whatever happens in the next two hours for those people, <laughs> you know, they're going to press on and plow through and they're going to make it because as Will says, they're just people, you know, <laughs> like, like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. He is, he, and, he is uh, a very healthy individual by the end of that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, I think that's probably a good place to sort of land the plane. Um, if you, if you've listened to this film, if you've listened to this conversation, you haven't seen this film, then we have spoiled a, a significant amount of it. It's still worth your time. Oh, and I gosh, would venture yeah. to say that, uh, you know, as we've said, this film rewards a second viewing. I would venture to say if you have listened and haven't seen it, then you may enjoy it all the more now knowing where it's going. Cause it's a, it's a really wonderfully realized film. I found out on the trivia that IMDb lists, if it can be believed, that, uh, the writers and director had complete control, complete creative control, cause it was, uh, kind of self-funded or privately funded. And it's just a wonderful, and wonderfully realized story. It is scary, and it is, I agree with you, it is hopeful, and it is uh, very, very deeply affecting, and I think it is worth any film fan's time, and especially any horror Well, fan's and time. to our credit, you know, I, I, I usually wouldn't care if we had spoiled things, but we actually skirted pretty heavily with, you know, the actual content of when the, when the action oh, ratchets up, you know, so there's still plenty left to enjoy in this movie if you haven't seen it. <laughs> That is, uh, that is very, very true. And we hope, uh, that you have enjoyed this conversation because as we say every episode and get ready, we'll say it every episode to come is that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation. We'd love to hear from you about this film and about this and about this conversation that we've had. You can reach out to us in a variety of ways. You can, um, follow us on Twitter. Nathan, what is our Twitter handle? At the fear of God. You can also like us on Facebook. There's a link to, uh, the Facebook page from Twitter. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter? At the Nathan Rouse. You can also, as a final beat, you can uh, email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us an iTunes review. We would very, very much appreciate that. That is the best and easiest way to uh, help make us more visible and more uh, uh, accessible to uh, a broader listenership. So we hope that you've enjoyed this talk and we hope that your new year has started off well. Yes. And uh, you can check social media to see where we're going to be going next. But Nathan, thanks so much for pushing heavily for us to cover this film. And uh, and uh, thanks so much for having this talk with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thank you for accepting the invitation to do so. And, uh, <laughs> Happy New Year to you, brother. Happy New Year to you as well, my friend. And guys, we'll see you next week.